Our sermon text for today is Romans chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. And this is actually probably be a two-parter. Well, I say probably it is going to be a two-parter. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a one and done, but as I got to writing and thinking about things, it's well, no, this ain't going to work, so... We're going to lay a foundation today that I hope challenges you. Now, if you're familiar with the epistle of Romans, you know that this reference I just made to chapter 16 is at the very end of the letter. And I want to discuss the context there at the end a little bit here in a minute. But before we do that, I want to read two things. I want to read what Paul writes in the beginning of the letter. And then I want to read this quote from John Murray in his commentary on Romans. And here he's, Murray's commenting on the very beginning, he's at the very beginning of his commentary, where he's discussing who the author of Romans is, which is the Apostle Paul, and he's giving us a little information about Paul. But first, let's read Paul. Paul says, beginning this letter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Murray notes this phrase from Paul that he's been set apart for the gospel. And then writes this. That the Apostle Paul wrote the Epistle to Romans is not a matter of dispute, and for that reason, as one of the most recent commentators has said, it's a proposition which is unnecessary to discuss. But we must not fail to appreciate the significance of Pauline authorship when we relate this fact to the contents of this epistle. As we read the epistle, we cannot escape the emphasis that falls upon the grace of God, and more specifically upon justification by grace through faith, it was to this gospel that Paul was separated. When he says separated, he means that all bonds of interest, 
in attachment alien to the promotion of the gospel had been rent asunder and that this gospel had made him captive. This consecration and dedication must be set against the background of what Paul had previously been. He himself testifies that, quote, after the straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, Acts 26.5. And it was his Phariseeism that constrained him to think with himself that, quote, he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Acts 26.9. And he became the arch persecutor of the church of Christ, as we read in Acts. Behind this opposition was religious zeal for a way of acceptance with God that was the antithesis of grace and of justification by faith. Hence, when Paul writes his greatest polemic in the exposition and defense of the gospel of grace, it is as one who has known to the fullest extent in the depths of his own experience and devotion the character of that religion, which now is the bondservant of Christ, he must characterize as one of sin and death. Pharisaism was a religion of law. Its religious horizon was defined and circumscribed by the resources of law and therefore by works of the law. It was the spell of that religion that was decisively broken by Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so Paul writes, Romans 7.10, And the commandment which was unto life, this I found to be unto death. And in Galatians 2.19, for, for I through the law died to the law that, that I may live to God. And in Romans 3.20, from works... From works of law, no flesh shall be justified before God, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. When Paul unfolds the antithesis between grace and law, faith and works, he writes of an antithesis which had been reflected in the contrast between the two periods of his own life history, periods divided by the experience of the Damascus Road. And this contrast is all the more significant in this case because the zeal that marked Paul in both periods was unsurpassed in its fervor and intensity. No one knew better, and perhaps none comparably, the self-complacency of law righteousness on the one hand and the glory of God's righteousness on the other. Quote. Now, just a very, very quick note. Don't misunderstand Murray when he says that Paul is unfolding the antithesis between grace and law, faith and works. Grace and law, when truly understood, are not at odds with one another, nor is faith at odds with works. What was at odds was a true and proper understanding of the law and of works versus Paul's misunderstanding of the law and of works as a Pharisee. Paul as a Pharisee, prior to his life-changing encounter with Christ, was, to borrow his own words in Romans 10, he was ignorant of the righteousness of God and sought to establish his own righteousness, not submitting to God's righteousness. In other words, he was relying on his own performance, his works of the law, as a means of getting right with God. And Paul would come to realize that such law righteousness of his own was impossible. Paul came to realize that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, Galatians 3.10. But again, that's just a little side note there. That's not the, that's not the reason I wanted to bring that, this quote from Murray. The main reason, the main thing I wanted to highlight is this. When Murray said, it was to this gospel Paul was separated. And then he says, and when he says separated, he means that all bonds of interest and attachment that were alien to the promotion of the gospel had been rent asunder and that this gospel had made him captive. 
You see, prior to his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had these bonds of interest. He had these attachments. And these bonds of interest, these attachments, were contrary to the gospel. They were alien to it. But when our Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of Paul, Jesus ripped those bonds of interest and attachments from him and created new attachments, new bonds of interest. So Paul can now write that he's been set apart from the gospel and even describes himself as a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. It's these new bonds of interest, these new attachments which are centered upon Christ and the gospel that are going to come up later in the letter, I think, and provide us with some context as to what we're going to be looking at in chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. So with that said, let us now turn to the end of the letter and look at our verses there in chapter 16. But before we do that, let's start with verse 1. Let's look at context. Verse 1, chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampletus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Orbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I don't know if you're going to piece if you can piece this together yet. Why I quoted this verse or this this thing from Murray. But as you heard this read, you can't help but notice that with Paul's new bond of interest and attachment to Christ, there comes with that a bond, an attachment that Paul now has with numerous people in a church that he hasn't even been to yet there in Rome. I mean, look, he makes mention of, what, 26 people by name, if I counted it right, as well as many others indirectly. And then he says at the end of all this to greet one another with a holy kiss. You can't help but sense this bond that he has, this attachment that he has for these people. And who are these people? Notice the way he describes them. 
fellow workers in Christ, verse 3. First convert to Christ in Asia, verse 5. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are in Christ, verse 7. My beloved in the Lord, verse 8. A fellow worker in Christ, verse 9. One who was approved in Christ, verse 10. Those who are in the Lord, verse 11. And workers in the Lord and one who worked hard in the Lord, verse 12. Are you seeing a pattern here? <laughs> you know, I, I spoke to this briefly last Lord's Day during communion. And I wasn't even thinking about today's sermon. It was just something that just came up yesterday or last week. But I want to remind you of it again today. What's the pattern we're seeing here from Paul? We see that Paul has this deep bond and affection and attachment to these people. And these are people that he repeatedly describes as being in Christ or in the Lord. Clearly then, this bond and this attachment that he has for them, that they have for one another, is grounded in their bond and their attachment to Christ and to the gospel. Let me say it another way. It was Paul's relationship to Christ that established the bond and the attachment that he had for all of these people. That's what we can infer by Paul's constant description of them as being in Christ and in the Lord. That's the glue that bonded these people together and held them together. Apart from Christ, apart from the gospel of Christ, these relationships simply would not have existed. Think about your own life. Think about this church. What would have been the chances of some Haitians becoming friends with some Tennesseans and some Ohioans, how you say that, and some whatever? What are the chances of us coming together apart from Christ? I'd say none. What would have brought us together apart from Christ? I think of my own family, my kids. They wouldn't even be alive today if I not met Amanda. And where did I meet her? At church. My whole family's existence, the whole reason we moved down here to Lakeland and became friends with you in all, in all of this is all due to what? Our common bond to Christ and the gospel. If we didn't have that, I wouldn't know any of you, including my wife. Now, why is this point so important to consider as we move into verses 17 and 20? Why did we need to establish that foundation first instead of just going straight into verse 17? I think it's important for this reason. When you get to verse 17, <clears throat> Paul's going to do something pretty tough. He's going to issue a warning, and then he's going to ask us to do something that for a lot of us may be an extremely difficult request to comply with. I mean, we already know for many outside of the faith, outside of church, what he's going to ask us to do would be is absolutely absurd. Like, why would you do such a thing? But even for many in the faith, even many who profess Christ, many might say, well, Paul, I was with you for most of the letter, but this, you're going too far. You can't ask me to do this. 
Well, what is it that Paul warns us about and asks us to do? Well, let's read it. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, some, com uh, some commentators don't even think that these verses are part of the original letter. They think someone added these verses later. I mean, just step back and look at it. We just heard it from verse 1 to verse 16. What did you hear? Greet this person. Greet that person. Greet this person. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Greet, greet, greet. Love, love, love. Affection, 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 right? But if you skip these verses, 17 through 20, pick it back up at verse 21, we're right back to him writing, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason. And so Sipater, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter for Paul, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. Look at it, we're right back to greet, greet, greet. Love, 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 right? So one could argue, and people do, it looks like verses 17 through 20 were just randomly dropped in the middle of all these greetings. It doesn't have any connection to the surrounding context. And so for this reason and others, many argue that these verses aren't even original, probably. And then when you read what it is that Paul supposedly tells us to do, it's like, man, this, this can't be right. This is going too far. Why would Paul, in the midst of all this love and affection for people, just all of a sudden shift to warning, to a warning where he's telling us to stay away from certain people? It doesn't sound very loving, does it? It just seems like an awkward thing to say at this point. Some even go so far as say Paul just flat out contradicting himself. Why would they say that? Well, look at it. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions. Watch out for those who are seeking to destroy our unity. And then he turns right around and says, those people, don't be in union with them. Avoid them. It's almost, I can almost hear Paul saying, greet this person, greet that person. Don't greet him, though. Stay away from him. Seems contradictory. But is it? If you go back to chapter 15, right before he does this list, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul's clearly all about love and unity. So how then can he turn around and say, but there's some people you better avoid and stay away from? Is he contradicting himself? 
Is this possible that he didn't even write these words? That he just somebody just threw it in later down the road? Well, there's some, I think we need to really understand why such reasoning is problematic. And I certainly don't embrace any of that nonsense. I think one of the things we need to understand is that we live in a culture today, especially in this country, where we've taken the ideas of love, we've taken the ideas of unity, and we've completely divorced them from God and from Christ and from the gospel and from truth. And there's massive problems with that. There's numerous problems with it. We even have some in the church who think that way. And so let's talk about why this is problematic. One reason I would say that this mentality of having unity devoid of truth is wrong is because it falsely assumes the idea of neutrality. It assumes that people can be neutral about Christ, that they can be neutral about the gospel, that they can be neutral about doctrine. And the simple reality is, is that no one is or can be neutral about these things. Pastor Enro has been spending a lot of time in Genesis, in the garden. I don't want to beat a dead horse or a dead sinner, I guess. <laughs> but just think about what's going on here. God says this is reality. The serpent comes and says, did God actually say that? You should not eat of any tree of the garden. And then the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden. But God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's Satan doing? You notice Satan's not claiming to be God, but he is claiming to be right. And what is he trying to get Eve to do? Eve, forget what God said for a moment. Just be neutral. Think about this for yourself. Investigate this for yourself. Try to be objective, Eve. And so, I like what this one guy wrote. This is just an article I found online. A guy named Bill Hyde. I have no idea who he is. I'm not... <laughs> it could be way out there on other stuff. I don't know, but just like what he wrote here. He says, that the, as the neutral investigator, research scientist, and judge, Eve had to fall back on some aspect of her own nature to find a touchstone and standard for her analysis. To which I say, yes, exactly. She had to fall back on, if she's going to forsake God and his word, she's got to fall back on something in order to judge reality. You can't analyze something without tools, without knowledge. So what was Eve going to fall back on? And he, Bill says, she could, for instance, turn to deductive logic. I'm not going to get very far from that. You can't deduce from knowledge if you don't have knowledge. Or Eve could turn to her emotions. She could meditate upon the tree. 
She could descend into the depths of her soul and there discover her fundamental oneness with all reality, including the tree and its fruit. On simple romantic and pantheistic assumptions, she could be certain that nature would never betray a loving heart. And on the basis of love, she could be sure that the fruit was good. She could fall back on empiricism. Let's just analyze the tree. Let's put it under a microscope. Hey, this thing don't look any different than the other tree. And finally, Eve could fall back on sheer volition. She could act with purpose with regard to the tree. She could take the fruit with determination, acting to create herself and her reality in this existential moment. But whether Eve chose to act as a rationalist, an empiricist, a romantic, or an existentialist, a nagging problem remains. And what is that problem? God claimed to be the creator of all of it. And if this were true, then the tree, the fruit, and even Eve herself were wholly the creation of a sovereign God. God's interpretation was not just opinion, but the all-conditioning decree of the God who made and moved the universe. In such a case, there can be no neutral ground. Every fact was God's fact established by his decree moved by his providence. Every fact is what God said it was, nothing more, nothing less. Every fact testified to the reality and identity of its maker. And so any attempts to find neutral ground in such a scenario is foolishness, it's madness, and even rebellion. But let us grant Eve her neutrality for a moment, that is her autonomy. Rejecting God's interpretation of reality, what he says, she will decide for herself what is true and good and right. Well, how's that going to work out for her? Any appeal to reason presupposes a rational universe of cause and effect, a noble universe that somehow is in sync with Eve's mental processes. But how can this be? How can we know it to be so? Should we simply claim that it's reasonable to be reasonable and rational to be rational? That is the epitome of arguing in a circle. Appealing to our senses is full of more problems than most folks think. Our senses are tied to the present moment. They tell us nothing about the past or future. By their very nature, they can't yield scientific law or any accurate prediction of the future. They give us a splash of light and color, a smell, a passing sensation of texture and heat, a note and a pitch, but nothing more. What lies behind our senses stays a mystery, unknown and unknowable. But what about emotion or intuition? Call it what you want. This also falls short of any explanation. Why should anyone, quote, trust the force? Why should we believe that our feelings about things out there, things apparently distinct from us, are accurate renderings of reality? All is one is a religious assumption, not an epistemological answer. And finally, the blind use of volition, the existential choice in the face of uncertain options, says nothing about objective reality. The existentialist must assume, because there is no proof, that there is anything more to reality than the form he imposes upon it by his choice or by his or her choices. In short, again, this is the bill, even a single step into autonomy leads straight down the no explanation path. It's either a blind faith in oneself 
for it is an unconscious acceptance of an entire worldview, one that makes huge, unprovable claims about God, man, and the universe. And in running from faith in the Creator who has spoken, man end up, ends up with faith in his own beliefs and presuppositions. He runs from revealed religion to his own self-invented natural religion. But at the end of the day, he's still religious, always religious, but never neutral. End quote. I thought that was very well said. He's absolutely right. If God created all things, if God is the source, if God is upholding and keeping all things in place and he's doing all this to carry out his eternal decree in order to fill a purpose that he has, then for us to turn to some other explanation of reality is to reject God, is to reject things as they truly are. Either you believe what God said or you oppose it. It's as simple as that. And either you will be a servant to God in his quote-unquote interpretation, his word, his explanations of the facts, or you will oppose it and serve someone else. There is no other options. It's logically impossible for God to be right and to be wrong at the same time about the same stuff. So take your pick. You have to choose. But it's not possible to be neutral. Joshua wrote, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery? And who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed? And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we, will, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, and he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. There's no sense of neutrality there with Joshua. And then Jesus said in chapter uh, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You know, a very interesting thing happens over and over, and I'm sure you've seen it from people who preach absolute tolerance. They'll tolerate you until you disagree with them, until you disagree with their beliefs and their agenda. And as soon as you start doing that, they will waste no time censoring you. They may even come after you physically. 
Folks, neutrality never works. It's a myth. I like what John Piper says. He says, when there is no truth that deserves assent from everybody, the only arbiter in our competing desires is power. Where truth doesn't define what's right, might makes right. And where might makes right, weak people pay with their lives. When the universal claim of truth disappears, what you get is not peaceful pluralism or loving relationships. What you get is concentration camps and gulags. Beloved, we have to, to rid ourselves of this foolish notion that we can have unity apart from truth. Because the reality is, every single one of us is committed to something. Every single one of us have these bonds of interest, these attachments. And every single one of us eventually is going to oppose and even avoid those who work against us in our interests, in our attachments. We all do it. That's the point. Even the most supposed, loving, carefree, pink-haired, tolerant, LGBTQ person, whatever person, whatever, even they have their limits. Even they have a line drawn in the sand. Even they have a point at which they'll say to someone else, man, you've gone too far. I don't want to be with you. I got to avoid you. So the question of whether we can be neutral or not isn't the question. It's never the question. We've already answered that. Neutrality is impossible. The real question is this. When you pursue love, when you pursue unity, and when you realize that, man, there are many people that are going to work against that and oppose you, and you're going to have to avoid such people, you're going to have to divide from such people, we all do it. What is that love and unity and cause for division grounded in? What is it rooted in? You know, I mentioned earlier that many people, even those who profess Christ, would have serious problems with Paul's request here to watch out for certain people and avoid them. And I spoke to one reason why it creates a problem for some, and that's because many have bought into this myth of neutrality. But there's another reason why some may take issue with Paul's request here. And I think that's because some people, and I mainly think about people in the church, falsely assume that Paul thinks of love and unity in their terms and fail to recognize what Paul roots love and unity in. And this is why I spent the time that I did in the beginning on that list of greetings. Again, the constant description of people as being in Christ and in the Lord points us to the root for Paul. As I said earlier, it was Paul's relationship to Christ that established the bond and attachment that he had to all these people. Christ, the gospel, the doctrine, that's what established these bonds for him. And we see that not only in the list of greetings, but we see that here in our very verse, verse 17. Notice carefully what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Now let's stop there. Imagine we stop there. You might think, oh, I know people like that. Paul must be talking about these loudmouth, belligerent people, you know, the town drunk that hangs out at the bar down the road, always trying to pick fights with people and argue. 
But that's not who Paul has in mind. Furthermore, would you even need to be warned about such people? I wouldn't. It's pretty obvious I wouldn't want to hang around with that. Nobody gets along with a belligerent town drunk. That's not who Paul's concerned about here. Keep reading. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And then look what else Paul says about them just in passing. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Why? Because they're neutral? No. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. See, there it is again. Paul had listed name after name of those who serve Christ and are workers in the Lord. But then he comes to these people and says, oh, they're servants too. They work too, but they ain't serving the Lord. They're serving their own appetites, their own bellies. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Where'd that come from? Satan hasn't been mentioned in this whole letter directly, and now he brings up Satan here. Why is he doing this? I think Paul's revealing who these people ultimately serve. You remember Jesus said to a group of Jews, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word, my doctrine. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You cannot bear to hear my word, my teaching, my doctrine. And you cannot bear it because you don't belong to my father. You belong to another father, your father, the devil. These people that Paul are warning us about here and tells us to avoid are selfish, servants of their own bellies, and ultimately servants of Satan. And what is it that they're doing for Paul to classify them as such. They cause divisions and they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they have been taught. They depart from sound biblical doctrine and then they talk others into doing the same. Sounds like the serpent in the garden, doesn't it? Well, I want to close with <clears throat> one other quote from Piper. I think he hits it right, right on the head. He says, here Paul says, avoid them, divide from them. Why? Because they are promoting doctrine contrary to what they had been taught. Now, Paul's response to this could have been, well, nobody has all the truth. and Everybody has a piece of it. And unity is more important than truth, so don't divide. And we would say, well, that impulse would not be all bad, would it? Unity is a good thing. Paul cares about it. I mean, his first command here is watch out for those who cause divisions. But that is not the way he responded to this situation. Instead, for the sake of unity, that is truth-based unity, Paul calls for truth-based division. Avoid them. I don't know how Paul could make any clearer how he relates doctrine and unity. For Paul, 
doctrine is the basis of unity. Without the common doctrine they had been taught, the unity would not have been Christian unity. So he is willing to call for truth-based disunity for the sake of truth-based unity. In other words, when a person departs from the doctrine that the apostles had taught, Paul sees this as a greater threat to unity than the disunity caused by avoiding such people. Catch that, let me read it again. When a person departs from the doctrine that the apostles had taught, Paul sees that as a greater threat to unity than the disunity caused by avoiding such people. If we say, well, how can that be? How can dividing from a false teacher who rises up in the church promote unity in the church? The answer is that the only unity that counts for unity in the church is rooted in a common apostolic teaching. Isolating false teachers that is avoiding them is Paul's strategy for preserving unity that is based on true teaching, end quote. And to that I say, amen. I think it perfectly fits the context of what Paul's doing here at the end of his letter. It is an expression of love. It is an expression of unity. And that Paul's basis for unity is in Christ, it is in the gospel, it is in doctrine, it is evident right here in verse 17, where he warns us to mark those and avoid those who would draw us away from the doctrine we were taught. But even before that, before we even got to verse 17, we saw in his list of greetings how Paul repeatedly describes those people as being in the Lord and in Christ. Paul's union and communion with Christ is what established his union and communion with these people. And so without the former, the latter would simply not exist. Well, as you can see, there's much more to say. Like I said, when I originally wanted to preach from this, I figured it'd be one and done. We'd get through all four verses, but I'm out of time. There's some other issues we need to consider, especially note how these people operate, their methodology. We see that in 17, or at the end of verse 18. I think it's extremely important that we look at that, but we'll have to save that for the next sermon. But in the meantime, be thinking upon these things. This is a very serious concern for Paul, and so it should be for us. Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, especially in our culture today, are lulled to sleep and put on a path of destruction that's going to end up in eternal wrath and judgment from God, and they're all doing it in the name of love and unity and tolerance. But beloved, it's done with a perversion of love, unity, and tolerance. Because it's a divorce from Christ. It's divorced from the gospel. It's divorced from doctrine. And thus directly opposed to him. And you hear it here. What's going to happen in the end? God will crush Satan. And he will crush those who serve him. The day is coming, beloved. So I ask you today, who do you serve this day?
Take your pick. It's one or the other. But don't fool yourself into thinking you can be neutral. Let's pray.